You may be seated. Well, again, welcome to HBF. If you are a guest this morning, we are super glad that you're with us, and I do hope you got a guest bag and got a guest Bible and got a guest whatever, all the goodies. And uh, here after a while, we'll be uh, taking up an offering at the end of service, to, and we'd love to have you uh, put your information in, that, in the uh, offering plate so we have a chance to get to know you. That would be a great gift to us for Thanksgiving week coming up. If you do not have a handout... Um, if you came in at 9 and didn't get a handout or you need one, just throw your hand in the air, wave it like you just don't care, and uh, one of the ushers will be by, and uh, we'll know who all those 1980s people are, and uh, so just wave your hands in the air, and they'll get you a handout if you are indeed in need of one. So we're in the book of Exodus. Before I get into Exodus, just want to just rem- just uh, praise God, right? Thanksgiving week, a lot of great things have been going on uh, the harvest has come in for many of the farmers, and the uh, some of you I saw got your deer or your deers or your does, your bucks, you know, your venison, so your freezers are full, or by God's grace they will be. So praise God for that. Um, so so this morning we're going to be looking at the the uh, text in Ephes- or Ephesians in the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter two, Exodus chapter two. We're going to be in verses twenty three. Through 25. I just noticed that your notes say Genesis chapter 2. That is an error, so uh, no better time than now to point that out right off the bat. So it should be Exodus chapter 2, and we're going to finish up the second chapter of Exodus this morning talking about prepared sinners. If you don't have a Bible, grab one from the seat rack in front of you or the, the gift bag that you got, and you can pull that out and turn to page 84. And uh, that'll put you right where you need to be. Last time we got together in the book of Exodus, I preached on how Moses was delivered um, to be a deliverer. And we saw how God delivers delivers or conceived in obscurity. Uh, God's deliverance is cursed by carnality. And then we saw that God's deliverance delivers must learn to be content with a shepherd's identity. So today, I want to look a little bit uh, deeper at this and take the other side of that coin and examine those who need to be delivered. And I've titled this message, Prepared Sinners. Today we live in a time when people need provision. James was just alluding to that. You know, it kind of gets scary. Where's your next meal coming from? There's things that come in our life where we need God's provision. We need to know that God's taking care of us. That applies to, of course, sinners as well as saints. We all need to know that we're being cared for by the Lord. Like Moses, who was content to give up being a ruler in Egypt, to rest content in his shepherd's identity as a herdsman from Midian, he was very content to just simply rest in what God provided for him wherever he led. And even though that was a, a kind of a, a consequence of carnality, he ended up growing through that, whether he knew it or not. And as we approach the end of chapter 2, we see the attention turned back to the children of Israel and this problem king that we've talked about in previous messages, who, of course, is Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. So if you have your Bibles, let's look at Exodus chapter uh, 2. In verse 23, it says, And it came to pass in the process of time that the king of Egypt died, and the children of Israel sighed by reason of the bondage, and they cried, and their cry came unto God by reason of the bondage. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God had respect unto them. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. We're thankful for Jesus Christ dying on the cross for our sins, being buried and rising again the third day. We know that he is alive right now. And Lord, I pray as we look at the rest of this passage that you would teach us all things, whatsoever you said to us. Lord, I pray the Spirit of God would have already gone through right now and prepared our hearts and tilled up the soil. And Lord, that the Word of God would drop on and bring forth fruit, much fruit and fruit that remains. Uh, Not for our sakes, but for your sake, Lord. I pray, God, you'd get the honor and glory out of everything that is said and done this morning. We thank you, Lord, for loving us and giving us your Son and delivering us from the wrath to come. We praise you now in Jesus' name. Amen. As we look at this passage here that we just read, we saw twice there the Lord emphasizes bondage. And there is an old adage in the church that God uses prepared saints to minister to prepared sinners. And in this case, the bondage of Egypt is preparing the children of God to be delivered. Now, I'm, I've called this prepared sinners because uh, they haven't quite been birthed yet. They're just on the way. This is, this is a true statement that God does use prepared saints to minister to prepared sinners. And if our gospel be hid, it's hid to them that are lost. 
The mission of the church, of course, is to equip the saints of God and the word of God to accomplish the mission of God and the power of God for the glory of God by the grace of God. And in essence, we exist to prepare men and women to share the gospel and make disciples of all nations. So uh, that is the mission of the church, and that's ultimately what the church is all about. So if you were here Wednesday, you saw uh, an example of what I'm talking about in regard to prepared sinners and prepared saints, if you heard Derek Thomas's presentation. Uh, of course, he heads up the Bible College at Kiev in uh, Ukraine, and uh, by his own admission, right, he was just a herdsman, just doing what God told him to do. He had no idea that this war would come and, and bring such a revival. He even said that uh, Wednesday night. If, if, if he would have known, uh, if you'd have told him that the people would be as open as they are to the gospel, he would not have believed it. Because, you know, Eastern Europe is a hard place oftentimes to preach the gospel. It's not a, the soil there is pretty tough, normally. And right now, right now, in this time in history, at this moment, uh, this, the soil is fertile. Why is that? Well, because God has prepared sinners to receive his message, right? He has prepared sinners, but not only did he prepare, is he prepared sinners, before they ever got there, there's been prepared saints, uh, men and women that are prepared uh, to uh, preach the Bible and give the word of life. And uh, man, what an incredible update that was. We heard Wednesday night, and it's just neat how they just sprung into action, and uh, God is just blessed beyond what they could even ask or think. In some of the, what would have been some of the most difficult regions of Ukraine, uh, now, uh, the suffering people of Ukraine are sighing, they're crying, and they're groaning uh, to hear from God. Not only with physical help, but the most important thing they really need is spiritual help because they recognize their life is truly but a vapor. It literally could be vanquished at any moment, and death surrounds them. It's a moment-by-moment, day-by-day proposition, so they don't know what tomorrow will bring. And so in America, oftentimes, we're lulled into this false sense of security and uh, as though we're going to live forever and obviously that's not the case. I mean, that's just common sense. But the reality is we don't really uh, see mortality, um, you know, like, we, like other places in the world, like Ukraine right now. And that, that difficulty is what really has prepared their heart. So what is obviously a curse of sin, war is a curse of sin, no doubt about it. It's all part of the endemic problem. But God can still use that for his purposes to prepare sinners to receive the gospel. And he can use prepared saints to get the gospel there on time. And so it brings God glory. So today, maybe even in this room, um, you're, you're here this morning, uh, and if, maybe if not in this room, in our city, in this area of Cass County, uh, in the metro, I guarantee you there are plenty of prepared sinners. God is preparing because God wants to see people saved. The question is, are we prepared to go share the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? Right? And so God's doing two things. In one hand, he's preparing Moses. On the other hand, he's preparing the people of God to be delivered. And so you are here to see God's answer. Um, you, you are here to see God answer your prayer, perhaps. Maybe God's brought you in today and you are a prepared sinner. And today's the day God's going to answer your prayer or you are the answer to someone's prayer. Maybe today, right now, there's somebody that you're going to run into this afternoon or tomorrow or this week and everything in your life as a Christian even has led you to the point where God is going to use you to be an answer to a heart cry where they need to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. But you got to be prepared. you got to be prepared to share. Or you're never going to be able to be that answer to someone's prayer. And so you see that dynamic in Genesis cha- or in Exodus chapter 2 and 3, as Moses will be called in the next chapter, uh, where God has prepared a saint to meet the needs of a prepared group of people. Now, I've called them sinners because uh, they need to have faith. They need to trust in the Lord. And they haven't yet done that, uh, but they're getting ready to. So in your outline, the first thing I want to look at is how prepared sinners benefit from the process of time. Notice in your text, in, in Exodus chapter 2 and verse 23, and it says, And it came to pass in the process of time that the king of Egypt died, and the children of Israel sighed by reason of bondage, and they cried, unto, and their cry came unto the God by reason of the bondage. And so we see here this, this phrase, in the process of time. You know, we benefit from understanding, the, uh, understanding what the Bible teaches about the process of time. We benefit from understanding what the Bible teaches about the process of time. Uh, in the process of time, what we can do, if we just do a word study of that in our Bibles, it gives us a great outline. The first thing we learn is that rebellion grows in the process of time. The first time you see this phrase in the Bible is Genesis chapter 4 and verse 3. It says, in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. Now, based on the conversation that Cain has with the Lord, 
Uh, I, I tend to believe that Cain knew that was not the proper offering. Uh, he knew he was supposed to bring, uh, of the, uh, bring an offering of the flocks of Abel, but he didn't want to do that because he worked so hard producing such a bumper crop, and he wanted to pr- provide his works, right? And God's like, nope, I'm, doing, I'm, I'm laying out a picture here. This is not how we're rolling, right? Um, and so, so Cain, whether you know it or not, theologically, you're a picture of Adam. You're the first. I need the second, and that's Abel. He's a herdsman. I'm going to be the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Whether you understand that or not, just obey me. Just do what I tell you, and bring of the bring your brother, uh, bring a lamb from your brother's herds, right? And of course, uh, he didn't want to do that. So we see rebellion grows in the process of time. These were adult men. They weren't baby boys. These were men that had grown, and his rebellion was revealed over time. Another thing that we see in the process of time is hypocrisy grows in the process of time. The second mention of this phrase, process of time, is found in Genesis 38 and verse 12. It says, In the process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died, and Judah was confronted, or I'm sorry, comforted, and went up unto his sheep shears to Timnath, he and his friend Hira, the Adolamite. Okay, so what's that got to do with the price of tea in China? Well, uh, I'll tell you, if you know much about that passage, uh, there's a lot of, of hypocrisy going on in this chapter. Uh, there's a lot of apathy that's taking place. Uh, Judah was to, uh, Judah and his, his sons actually, were married to, uh, to, well, his son was married to a lady named Tamar. His daughter-in-law was named Tamar. And her husband died. Now, this, these are the sons of Judah. They were wicked men. It, it says so in the text. If you went, went back and read it, it, the Bible tells us they're so wicked, God killed them. So these boys are not, you know, they're not the apples of everyone's eye. There's some pretty rough characters in the line of Jacob and, uh, and Judah. Just read the story of Joseph and how they treated their little brother, right? So these dudes are kind of gnarly, like some of our family members, right? None, not you, of course. And so, uh, and so they, they are... They are they're in a situation uh, where the law of the kinsman redeemer is in effect. So uh, even though the law of Moses hasn't been written yet, uh, they need to they need to uh, find a, a a surrogate husband for um, Tamar so they can raise up seed in the name of her deceased husband and in the name of Judah ultimately ultimately because it's going to extend the posterity of Judah. Now later on that's going to be codified codified right in the in the law under what's called the law of the kinsman redeemer. It's the same law in which Ruth was redeemed by Boaz, right? So, so this, this situation is, is so messed up that none of the sons will, um, will conceive with her. Uh, I won't get into too many details in a mixed crowd. You can read the Bible for yourself. And ultimately, Judah just kind of lays back. And, and, and when he says, just wait for my younger son. He'll, when he gets older, I'll give him to you. And, uh, and then he can raise up you know, seed in his brother's name, which is kind of weird, I know, but that's how it went in the Old Testament. All right, so he doesn't do it. He just is like, he just, his apathy and really hypocrisy. So uh, this passage that we read, the next mention of the process of time, as time goes on, he just kind of out of sight, out of mind, he forgets about it. And the next thing you know, uh, he's on, his wife dies and he's on his way up to, uh, with the sheep shears, and he stops by the side of the road and picks up a harlot, so he thinks. But that harlot is actually his daughter-in-law, Tamar. And he goes in unto her and conceives. And once the family finds out she's with child, they're all wound up and they're ready to kill her, and Judah's like, bring her in, let's execute her. And then he bring, she brings in the tokens of their engagement, or not their engagement, but their, um, but their interlude, I'll say, and gives him his signet and his staff, and he's like, uh-oh. Guess what? She's more righteous than I am, right? He's been a big hypocrite. The process of time kind of revealed that to Judah, and of course he went easy on Tamar, and through Tamar comes Pharez, and through Pharez ultimately comes Jesse, and through Jesse comes David. Imagine that, how God used that, that evil for good. The next time we see uh, another thing, or that's, that's as far as I'm going to go with that discussion, but death grieves, uh, grieves us also in the process of time. So the next time we see this phrase, the process of time, is Exodus chapter 3 and verse 19. This is past uh, verse 23, um, but we, we, it's, it's, in, it's akin to what we see in verse 23. The third mention is verse 23, and then the fourth mention is in um, 
uh, is in reference to the fourth reference I have there. And Exodus 3.19 is in reference to Exodus 2.23. All right, so the death of Pharaoh... Uh, didn't do anything to lessen the oppressive nature of the Egyptians um, uh, on the Hebrews, right? So death grieves us in the process of time. So this Pharaoh dies, and you think, oh, man, this guy is dead. Maybe we're going to get a little relief. But we find out when we get to Exodus 3.19, there was no relief. The Lord speaking to Moses says, and I'm sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go, no, not by a mighty hand. So he's sending Moses in to, to preach to, to Pharaoh, and he tells him up front, Pharaoh's not going to receive your message. Even though one Pharaoh died, it didn't bring any relief. Another wicked one just filled the gap. Even more wicked, probably, than the first one. And so death grieves us in the process of time. Death in general is grievous. And, uh, and so they were hoping for some relief, and they didn't find any. Also, desperation grows in the process of time. Of course, in the case of the nation of Israel, but also... In Judges 11, in verse 4, the Bible says, And it came to pass in the process of time that the children of Ammon made war against Israel. And it was so that when the children of Ammon made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to fetch Jephthah out of the land of Tob. Now this, this passage is the next mention of the process of time and is dealing with a time in Judges where uh, uh, Gilead had a son named Jephthah who was of a... Of a of a mixed marriage. He, she wasn't a, his wife was not a pure uh, Jew. She was a harlot, as a matter of fact. And so uh, it's supposed she was of another race as well, which is obviously most likely the situation. And, uh, and so they send him away. They don't want anything to do with him. But the Ammonites, the Ammonites' threat upon the nation of Israel was so severe that they became desperate. And it says in the process of time, in the passage that we just, I just read in Judges 11, 4 through 5, in the process of time, desperation set in, and they finally went and got Jephthah, who, by the way, was super gracious to come and actually deliver his, his brothers from the, uh, the threat of the Ammonites, and he judges the nation of Israel, so he was a gracious guy. So the fifth thing that we see is divine judgment awaits God's enemies in the process of time. You go to Second Chronicles chapter 21 and verse 19, and that, by, and that passage says, and it came to pass in the process of time, after the end of two years... His bowels fell out by reason of the sickness, so he died in sore disease, and his people made no burning for him like the burning of their fathers. Now, who are we talking about here? It was a king named Jehoram, and he reigned eight years and did everything in his power to to actually blaspheme God as a king. Now, Israel had terrible kings like Ahab. Judah had its share of bad kings. This guy tops the list as one of the worst kings that Judah ever had. And, uh, and he was so bad that when he died, they didn't even honor him as they had honored other kings of Judah. And for the last two years of his life, the Bible says he suffered with this bowel disease that eventually killed him. And in the process of time, it was just a waiting game until he died. And really what that was all about was simply God judging him. God finally cut him off, and he was not buried in an honorable fashion with the kings of Judah because he frankly didn't deserve it. So the process of time teaches us practical lessons as well. The children of Israel learned Moses was right after 40 years of bondage under Pharaoh. One of the things that we see in this text that I just read about the process of time is that Israel's waking up to something, right? Uh, Bondage, you know, obviously it's not a good thing. It doesn't seem like a good thing, but God can use it for a good thing. And one of the things that, that, that God is using this bondage and oppression for in the process of time is to awaken Israel to what Moses knew 40 years earlier, that they needed to deliver, right? That's why Moses got in trouble in the first place, trying to do God's work in the power of his flesh. And so the Jews knew that they didn't need another ruler, and they missed the fact that Moses was trying to deliver them from injustice initially. And so, in fact, they did need a deliverer, and they didn't need a ruler. The ruler needed to be the Lord. So point C, the process of time taught the children of Israel that Pharaoh's death brought no relief from the bondage. I've already pointed that out, right, in Exodus 3.19. And so history continues to prove this reality as well. Even in our time, you think, man, it can't get any worse, but it does, right? In the 1940s, the whole world was at war with this wicked man, a very clear type of Antichrist, and uh, a, a man that believed in Norse mythology and an Aryan race, um, you know, I mean, he was down with Thor and the whole nine yards, coupled with Roman Catholicism. He sets up the SS, 
And he tries to take over the world with the Third Reich. You guys know who I'm talking about, right? Hitler. And in the process of that, he kills six million Jews. Oh, that's horrible. And it was horrible. But right after that, uh, you know, and, and you know, God used those Ruskies, but those Russians, they, it's estimated conservatively, the least amount of people that Joseph Stalin killed post-World War II. Anybody know? Well, the, least, the, the most conservative estimate is 20 million. Many think it's 60 million. So he did such a good job, they can't even find all the dead bodies. I mean, the guy was very efficient. He was a killer. Literally thousands, over a thousand or thousands of people every month, if you were living in the old Soviet Union, were being exterminated every month, depending on which estimate, the 20 million or the 60 million. And a great number of those were Jews. Many estimate that Stalin killed more Jews than Hitler. And then coupled with that, of course, we have, the, we have, the, uh, we have Chairman Mao, right? Uh, and, and he killed 60 million people as well, it's estimated, in China uh, with the wonderful uh, collectivist uh, mindset of, of communism there. And so that Marxist mentality, it's, it's really good. It really takes care of business, doesn't it? So, so those, guys, those guys went from bad to worse, right? Just like the children of Israel, they get rid of one Pharaoh, and then, man, there's another one that comes. They went from bondage to bondage. Why? Because God was preparing their heart to receive a deliverer. A deliverer. Of course, today, it doesn't matter if you're a communist mindset or a capitalist mindset. You, all you got to do is turn on the news or read the paper, if anyone still reads the paper, uh, read your news feed, whatever you're going to do, and you're going to find out today people are looking to people to deliver them. People are looking to people to deliver them. Politicians, people in power, the tech people, uh, Elon Musk, I don't know, whoever. You pick your, your person. But at the end of the day, the person that we need to deliver us is, this is the Amen Choir, we know. Who is it? Jesus, right? We know the person. There's only one person that can truly deliver us. And so history can, continues to prove this reality as it just gets worse. And so in the coming tribulation, and, times, and it's, I'm not done with my analogy, and I'll be done with this. In the coming tribulation, there is yet... Yet a man who's coming who will take power and will murder even more people. Can you imagine? I mean, I just named out, in the last, in the 20th century, I just, 6, 12, you know, over 100, well, what is that? Over, that's, that's millions. So I'm getting into a billion people, I think, if I'm counting right. 100, 100 over 120 million people. Uh, you, can, you know, roughly is what we're guesstimating have been murdered in the, in the, that doesn't, I didn't talk about Pol Pot. I, I mean, there's more. We could go on and on. And so, and so there's a lot that's gone on uh, in the last century. And guys, there's more to come. All right, praise the Lord. Let's go home. No, I mean, so that, that's kind of a heavy spot, right, to put the congregation in. But I want that to sink in for just a moment. Because with that kind of heaviness, don't you think people need some levity? Don't they need something to lighten that load? I, I got news for you. There's only one group of people on the planet that have the, the answer to all of that. And it's you. It's you. We're the only ones that haven't been given the spirit of fear, but power, love, and a sound mind. We're the only ones that have hope in the midst of a hopeless situation, even in the midst of prophecy. We know what's going to happen. We don't have to be threatened. We don't have to be afraid. Why? Because we have the solution, and the solution is Jesus, right? Uh, ironically, that's what Hitler had, right? He thought he had the final solution. No, the final solution rests with the Word of God. Point D, the process of time does really prove all things. It really does prove all things. You see, God uses time to reveal man's heart, as in the case of Cain, as I've already mentioned, even in the case of Judah, as I've mentioned, in the case of Pharaoh, which we'll see clearly as we go through the text of Exodus, Jephthah, Jehoram, or Jehoram, as he accomplished his divine purposes in the war between good and evil, God, God versus Satan, time will ultimately prove all things. And when time is done, Satan and his angels, along with all of Adam's sinful race, will be judged according to our response to God's holy word and the grace and the light that we've been given. So Pharaoh thought that he would die and be judged by uh, Osiris and his 42 judges. What a surprise it was to him in the process of time when he died. He woke up uh, in, a, in, a, in the flames of hell. 
uh, being held in judgment by the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, by the God of Joseph. In, in the New Testament, the Bible warns us to redeem the time, for the days are evil. Beloved, time is of the essence. In Psalm 39.5, the Bible reminds us that our ages is nothing before the Lord, and our life is as a handbreadth. Every man in his best state, the Bible says, is altogether vanity. And so the Bible tells us in Romans, in the New Testament, that theme continues. And, and the Apostle Paul said, and, and, and that knowing the time, knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. Right? Don't go to sleep like Judah. Stay awake. Right? Everybody's talking about being woke. Well, the Bible says be woke. According to Romans chapter 13, be woke, be awake. Verse 12, the night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness. What does it really mean to be awake? It means we cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light and let us walk honestly as in the day, and not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, We don't walk like the rest of the world. We walk like Jesus. But put on ye the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision or make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. We deny ourselves. We deny our flesh. Why? Because we understand it is time to be awake and we can't be intoxicated by the things of this life. We have to be focused on the mission at hand. Many years ago, a brother named Dan Smith wrote a song called The Opus. And in his song, he questions the effort of man in time. Uh, The song goes like this. I'm just going to read it as poetry. He says, He finished his work and turned in for the night. He had his devotions and turned out the light. As he gazed out the window and saw the night sky, he pondered his place in this world as history rolled by. Didn't the wise man once say that life is a vapor soon passing away? If If the span of his years was so small, then how could the fact that he lived even matter at all? Have all the great men of God come and gone? Are there any great deeds that have yet to be done? Has the great narrative gone as far as it goes? Is the opera that God has been writing ready to close? Didn't the wise man once say, there's there's nothing new under the sun? So how can the deeds done by one man today make any difference in the long run? And the chorus goes, but the great play of history is still going on. The choir of creation is still singing their song. And the master's great work is still being rehearsed. And you may contribute a verse. We all may contribute a verse. Understand in this opera, there are no wasted words. There are no insignificant parts. They all matter to the Lord. Oh, my friend, be ready. When it's your turn to write on the page, oh, child of God, keep listening for your cue to stand on the stage. And it concludes with a change in the course as he says, For the great play of history is still going on, the choir creation is still singing their song, and the opus of God is still being rehearsed, and you may contribute a verse. We all may contribute a verse. So what do I conclude by that? Well I conclude that Mick Jagger was absolutely wrong. Time, time, time is not on your side unless you're saved right? Time isn't on your side. Time is of the essence. And, and Dan Smith is thinking about that. And he's saying, hey, wait a minute. This is like a great opus and God is still working it out, but we all have a part in it and you make a difference in time. Even if you don't recognize it, even if you wandered off in the wilderness, even if you're content to serve Jethro, God has a plan for you to redeem other people who are crying out for the gospel, even if you don't know where they are or how they are. And if it's not happening in our neighborhood, then we'll go somewhere else. We'll go where we need to go to get the gospel where it needs to go on time. Prepared sinners are awaiting God's provision. Prepared sinners benefit from the process of time because eventually time will run out and we go into eternity. Prepared sinners benefit from the painful bondage of Exodus as well. There's a benefit, as I've already alluded to, to the painful bondage. Point A, God teaches us to identify bondage with the world. There's a lesson in this that God wants uh, the nation of Israel to identify, but he also wants us today to identify with it. If you're a Christian, if you've gotten saved recently, or maybe you've been saved a long time, but you've really been living for yourself and your flesh, or you've been a carnal Christian, so it's like you're still a baby, you haven't grown, because you just haven't decided to, you haven't gotten in the Word, you haven't been disciplined. But one of the things that will help you with that is the bondage of this world, understanding the type that is set forth here uh, by the Lord in the book of Exodus. In Exodus chapter 2 and, and the rest of this story of how Israel's in bondage. The world, the flesh, and the devil 
uh, will tell you obedience to God's word and will is bondage. So the narrative coming from the, the adversary is that obedience to God's will is bondage. So like if you're, if you're a young person here today, if you're, if you're in here, you're not over in the E-wing, you're, sitting, you're in here now, you're 12, 13, 14, 15 on up. What you're going to be told by everything in this world on your social media, at school, your friends, is that, hey man, uh, following God's a drag, going to church is a hassle, it's all about bondage, it's all about control, it's all about not having fun. And that's, that's basically what the world, the flesh, and the devil are going to be selling you. It's absolutely not the, the truth. There's more liberty in Christ. I mean, bottom line is, the only liberty in this world is in Christ. Everything else is bondage. But you have to believe the Word of God is true to even experience that. The Word of God, you've got to believe that He is and reward them that diligently seek Him. Right? And, and so... So all things are lawful, but not all things are expedient. We, we have the luxury and the liberty to even choose what we involve ourselves in. We have that kind of power and that kind of strength that only comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. But one of the things we have to learn is that we've, we've been raised in a vortex of lies, right? That you're gonna, you are going to be, you're going to be much better if you have a lot of money. Come on, man. Oh, that sounds like a president. But that the uh, the the uh, I didn't mean it that way. But uh, <laughs> that was actually me. Uh, but you know how many how many lottery winners do you know? Where the money just destroyed their life. Well, I don't personally know any of them, but I've read about them, right? And so you read these stories of these people that get blessed with all this wealth, and what does it do? It ruins their life. Well. They could have read Proverbs. Proverbs tells you that. Don't make me so rich that I'll depart, right? Don't make me so rich that I'll forsake you, Lord, but don't make me so poor that I'll steal, right? I don't need to, I don't want to steal, right? Give me what I need because sometimes if you get what you want, it will destroy you, right? And so there's a lie that you can find something other than God to satisfy you. And so God lays out this narrative. The Bible counters the lie. The Bible says we are to walk in the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. That's where the freedom is found, is walking in the Spirit. Galatians 5.25, 2 Corinthians 3.17. That is where the liberty is at. The first mention of bondage in the Bible is found in Exodus 1.14 in this same book, in the reference to the cruel bondage of Pharaoh. The second mention of bondage is found here in the passage we just read, and it's mentioned twice. Now, in the book of Exodus, the, the term bondage is found nine times. In eight of those verses... <clears throat> um, in eight of those verse, verses in the book of Exodus, we've already seen three of them. So three times in Exodus, as you get toward the end of the, of the book, bondage is associated with, with Egypt, and literally God calls it, he's got the phrase, the house of bondage. He repeats himself. I'm not, I didn't get all the references for you for time's sake, but you can look them up. They're in your notes. Exodus 13.3, 3, Exodus 13.14, Exodus 20 and verse 2. Every time, God is very careful to say, uh, Egypt is equal to the house of bondage. Now, why is that important? Well, I'm glad you asked. That's a good question. Because Egypt is a type of this world. This world is a house of bondage. The only way to be free is through the Spirit of God. So point B, the bondage produced uh, sighs heard by God. There comes a time when it's just too much. And in verse 23, that's what we see is these sighs that start to resonate from God's people. It says, it says, and the children of Israel sighed by reason of the bondage. The bondage brought them to a place where they were ready to start crying out, crying out to God. The word sighed is only found three places in the entire Bible. In Exodus 2.23, where the children of Israel sighed by reason of bondage, that's the first mention. Mark 7.23, where Jesus sighed as he called upon God to heal the, the deaf man who was a picture of Israel. Right, he was, and he heals him, and he sighs, and God hears his 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 groaning, and uh, and the deaf man is healed. And the third time is in Mark chapter eight and verse twelve, where Jesus sighed at the disbelief of Israel. He was so disgruntled by the Pharisees asking him one more time for another sign. It says that he sighed. It's like, man, I am so tired of you guys asking for a sign when he's already raised people, he's already healed people, he's done everything he needed to do, and of course we know how that goes. The next. Eventually, he says, the only sign I'm going to give you is the sign of Jonah. And so the word uh, sigh or side is also translated in a couple of places as moan or groan. And in the Hebrew sense of the word, it's associated with pain. 
pain. Under Pharaoh's rule, they were experiencing pain. Financial pain, emotional pain, a physical pain, every kind of pain you can imagine, right? It was painful, and they were sighing, they were groaning, they were crying out to God. And, and so I tell you what, in 1992, there was a presidential debate, and, and a, a president, there was a president named Bill Clinton who set himself apart from the other candidates when he ran for president. And one of the things he said is, I feel your pain. And he convinced a lot of people that he was empathetic to the pain. And man, that just, that just spread across the country like wildfire. People were all down with this guy. You know why? Because in the, whether people know it or not, they're looking for a benevolent ruler. And I got news for you. I got bad news for you. You're not going to find him in this world. The only place you're going to find that's in the Lord Jesus Christ. But intuitively, when, when a ruler can, can communicate in a way where he makes you feel like, oh, he's a benevolent leader. He really loves us. He's going to take care of us. Man, people just go to that. Why? Because it's a picture of Jesus Christ. And when they don't fulfill it, <laughs> it's a picture of the Antichrist. So the bondage produced collective cries from the children of Israel. In Exodus 2.23, we see that as well. Notice that the text says, The children of Israel sighed and they cried. Who among us doesn't hear the cry of our children when they're in anguish and trouble? You know, it doesn't say the nation of Israel. It says the children of Israel. So historically, of course, we're talking about Jacob's seed, Israel, and his children. But also we see here that God is viewing these, these, the, the seed of Israel as children. And when children cry, not every cry necessarily needs to be responded to, but he knows that this is serious bondage. It's serious oppression, and God's ear is, is, is listening. Why? Because he's listening for the contrite heart, the broken heart. These people are in real suffering, and he hears their cry. Many years ago, <clears throat> when I was about six or seven, I used to ride my bike through these sewage um, systems over in Susquehanna Village where I used to live. And there was a square one. It was about a 48-inch square. And then there was a diam- uh, round, probably 60-inch diameter uh, one. And I could ride my bike you know, through the, 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 the circle one, um, not too far from where you all live, right? And so you know where I'm talking about probably, overall Cheyenne Drive. So I'd, drive, I'd ride under Cheyenne, and I'd go out in the woods, and they had these you know, BMX trails. You could jump and do all that. It was pretty cool. So uh, one day I decided, you know, you pick your poison, you go through either one. It was kind of a challenge to go through the square one, right? Because you can't, you kind of got to be hunched over because you don't want to hit your head on the concrete. And so I decided to go through that one day. And uh, I'm going through that thing and I, oop, I hit my head. I bounced up, you know, and I hit my head on the concrete as I was going through. Not, not a big deal. And then I get to the other side and uh, all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, start rubbing it. And guess what? There's some blood. Okay. I turn around. This time, I go through the circled tunnel. And, uh, and I ride out. And I, I had about a quarter mile to get home. And, uh, and so I, as I'm riding, all of a sudden, the blood just it starts trickling down my face. I got to go uphill, too, to get to my house. And so before I know it, I'm just like, it looked like the movie Carrie. I just got blood <laughs> running down my face. And, of course, now I'm starting to get a little worried, right? Because this is the first time in my life I've done something away from the house where I come back bloody like this, you know, look like some WWE guy or something. So I'm just covered in blood, and uh, I, I walk in the front door, and I said, Mom! I don't know how I said it. You'd have to ask her. But I said, Mom! And immediately she runs down the steps, and they did whatever they did to me. I don't, I don't think I had to get stitches for that one. But it wasn't that, that bad of a cut, but when you cut your head, it just bleeds like a sieve. So I was just bloody. But she said, as soon as she heard my voice, she was upstairs. As soon as she heard my voice, she knew something was wrong. Right? Why? Because mothers, they know the cry of their children. It wasn't the normal mom, I'm home. It wasn't the normal mom, whatever I was doing at the time. As soon as I walked in, she probably heard a little quiver in my voice or something was going on in my, my system. And she knew immediately, and she was Johnny on the spot, taking care of my head. So you should have seen the look on her face, all that blood. It was shocking. But fortunately, it wasn't that big a deal before it was over with. The point is simply this. When your children are hurting, especially you moms, right, you know it, right? You hear their voice. And when they're sighing and they're crying, God's hearing their voice. The first mention of cried in Scripture is found in Genesis 41 to verse 43, when the servants of Pharaoh were charged to go before Joseph's chariot and proclaim every knee to bow 
uh, to the second in the kingdom, right? They were to they were to go before and cry out, Joseph is the second in charge, bow down. Right? That was what they were doing. That's the first time you see it. My, how many times, how, how times have changed, right? It only takes 40 years, um, just half of a lifespan in one generation. And, and man, all of a sudden it's gone from people bowing before Joseph to Pharaoh enacting uh, policies to kill Hebrew children. Things change very fast. Uh, would, <clears throat> would to God we would be messengers that lead people into saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because time is of the essence. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. There would come a time in the nation of Israel's life when they would cry out in unison later on in Luke chapter 23 and verse 21. You know what they're going to cry? Crucify him! Crucify him! Not all the cries are good cries in the Bible. Not all the cries are resulting from bondage. Sometimes people in bondage cry for the wrong things. In the coming tribulation, uh, there will be many tribulation saints martyred, resisting the bondage of the Antichrist economy and religion. And they will cry in unison, asking God to give vengeance upon the wicked ruler who has hijacked the world economy, the world religion, and world government by feigning to be God. Revelation 6.10, it says, And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? I want to just meditate on that for just a second, beloved. Because we, the church of the living God, are the answers to both of those cries. To the sinner today that's crying out for relief and bondage, beloved, we are the solution. Not us. We don't have any solution in and of ourselves. But we have the Spirit of God. We have the Word of God. We have the local New Testament church. We have everything that a sinner needs to be saved. Conversely, those that harden their heart and, and go into the coming tribulation and, and are partaking of this uh, time that's, uh, that we talk about with this martyrdom and all of that and, and side up with the Antichrist, the world, the flesh, and the devil, and they go all in, eventually we come back with Jesus Christ to execute justice and judgment on this earth. So when Paul says we are ambassadors for Christ, he's not kidding. Today is the day for us to bring peace terms to every soul that will receive them. Today is the day to do that because after the church is caught up, after those trumpets blow and we're called up to assemble for war, the next time we come back, we're not offering grace. We're bringing judgment. And beloved, there's two sides of this cry. If you're a sinner here today and you're lost and you don't know Jesus, I beseech you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to call upon the name of the Lord while you have time. Today truly is the day of salvation. It is in the process of time that God has brought you here today so you can receive the good news that Jesus Christ is alive and he loves you. He died on the cross for you. If you think you'll wait until we return in the clouds, you're waiting for the wrong answer to prayer. That'll be the answer to those tribulation saints that are martyred in the, in the tribulation. And it doesn't, it's not pretty for those that are left. So, beloved, today, we are like Moses. We have already been delivered from the bondage of Egypt. We have already denounced our citizenship in this world, and we become citizens of heaven. We, like Moses, often feel powerless to affect change in the kingdoms of this world, but rather we know it or not, we are the pillar and the ground of the truth. We are salt and light. We are the antithesis of the pagan gods that rule the world systems today. So, point D, the bondage produced groanings as well. Groanings that God heard. This is the first mention of the word groaning as well in the Bible, and the root for groan uh, in, in any of its form in the Bible. The word groaning is mentioned nine times in the Bible, and it's the last mention here, and its last mention is in Acts chapter 7, where Stephen is recounting this same incident where God is answering the call of the groaning Israelites. He says, I have seen, I have seen the affliction of my people which is in Egypt. I have heard their groaning, and I am come down to deliver them, and now I come uh, I, I will send thee into Egypt. Here Stephen equates the deliverance of the nation of Israel by Moses as equal to the deliverance of the nation of Israel by Jesus. He actually sets up the type and announces that Jesus is the anti-type, meaning he is the authentic thing. It is sad that so many people are blind to the deliverance of Jesus from the bondage of sin and death, but many are today. And the signs and the cries and the groanings cause God to have respect unto the children of Israel, it says in verse 25. You know what God did? God heard the children of Israel's prayer. 
There are three mentions of God heard found in the scripture. In Genesis 2.17, God heard the voice of Ishmael as he interceded for his mother Hagar in the wilderness. We have the second mention here in verse 24. And the third mention is Psalm 78.59. When God heard of the idolatry in Israel, the Bible says he was wroth because they went into idolatry. When God heard this, he was wroth and greatly abhorred Israel. God will hear the repentant prayer of idolaters and the oppressed if we come to him with a broken and contrite heart. Point two, God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in Exodus 2.24. Remembrance is held in the mind. When you remember something, it's held in your cranium, right? The, the scripture says that we have the mind of Christ, and it equates to the preserved words of God in our English language. We have the mind. We have the covenants all preserved for us right here. We know that those covenants are there because God has preserved them for us today. We can read them. We've already done that in previous messages. In Genesis 8.1, when God remembered Noah after the flood, the eighth chapter represents a new beginning. In Genesis 19.29, when God remembered Abraham for Lot's sake in destruction of Sodom, it was a great picture of our intercessory prayer for the saints and sinners. In Genesis 30 and verse 22, when God remembered Rachel in childbearing, he opened her womb and blessed her with Joseph, who would save Israel by going into Egypt. And in Exodus 2.24, our passage this morning, God remembered Israel and he will deliver them through Moses. And of course, there's a shadow because in the coming tribulation, Moses is one of the two witnesses and he literally will deliver them again. So point three, God looked upon his children in Exodus 2.25. He, this obviously has to do with God's eyes, right? He hears them, and he looks upon them. In Psalm thirty-four, fifteen, the Bible says, The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ears are open unto their cry. So it's no accident that his ears were open and his eyes were open, right? He was looking and hearing what was going on with his people. God looked, and it's only found three times in the Scripture that God looked upon the earth. It was corrupt in Genesis 6:12. In Exodus 2:25, He looked upon His people. In Psalm 53:2, God looked down from heaven upon the children of man to see if there was any that did understand and that did seek God. And many of you know the companion verse of that in verse three. And every one of them has gone back. They are altogether become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Man, that's depressing. But when God looked. He did find one, and that one was the Lord Jesus Christ. In essence, what the psalmist is saying is that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And when God looked down, he found a group of people that were named after their father Israel, who had a covenant promise with him, and who he collectively called his son in Exodus 4.22. And they are a shadow of who the son would be, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when God looks upon his son, and he sees the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, well done, well done, that is my son, right? my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. There is one, and his name is Jesus. It says that God had respect unto them as well in verse 25. When we study this out, this is the only place the phrase God had respect is found in the Scripture. When, when we find the, the first mention of respect, we find ourselves in Genesis 4.4, 4, where God had respect for Abel's sacrifice. The second mention is, is verse 5, where God does not have respect for Cain's sacrifice because he's insisting I'm bringing the wrong one. The third mention of the word is in Exodus 2.25 where God respects the sighs, the cries, the groaning of Israel because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So when we go through the rest of Scripture, the overwhelming teaching on, uh, on, on respect is not to have respect of persons in judgment, starting in Leviticus 19 and verse 15. And that theme goes all the way through the Bible, even into the New Testament. God tells Israel he will have respect unto them if they continue in his commands. This morning, the Bible tells us that if we love God, we keep his commandments, and he commands all men everywhere to repent. The only thing God is asking a lost person to do is get saved. That's the only thing, is receive the gift of his son. And so, the, the, the prepared sinners await God's provision. They, prepared sinners benefit from the process of time. Prepared sinners benefit from the painful bondage. And then prepared sinners are blessed by God's merciful provision. Prepared sinners are blessed by God's merciful, merciful provision. When we are in the midst of suffering, of cruel bondage, and, and rigorous labor, it's hard to see or even believe that God has a gracious provision for us. Nevertheless, God has gone before us and prepared everything we need, even before we even knew we needed it. Eighty years prior, God provided a leader in Moses. He saved a baby out of, the, out of the Nile River, and that baby is already prepared, but Israel doesn't yet know that. Hundreds of years before that, he prepared a promised land, 
And, and uh, <clears throat> once they realize that, uh, he will bless them with even more promises. He will give them the law. The scripture says in Romans 5, 8, But God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Long before we were even born, God provided our deliverer. However, if you want to grow and, and <clears throat> you want to grow and, and get out of bondage, you'll need mature believers in the local church to guide you by faith out of Egypt through the wilderness of sin so you can enter into the promised land. One of the things that he provided Israel, point A, God had provided a mature leader to deliver Israel from the house of bondage. If it wasn't for Moses, they would have never gotten out. I mean, God could have found another leader, certainly. But God needed a mature leader to get them out. And that leader was Moses. You need maturity to lead, <clears throat> to lead by faith. That's what the church exists for. Avail yourselves of discipleship here at HBF. Get plugged into an adult Bible fellowship. Find your place in service. Why? So that you can grow and you can lead others out of, out of bondage. That's what discipleship does. It helps you process how the kingdom that you now are in, the place that you're going, the judgment seat of Christ. All that gets put in perspective so you can actually get out of bondage and live in the fullness and walk in the Spirit so you don't fulfill the lust of the flesh. God provided a promised land, as I've already mentioned, to His promised nation. This world is not our home. That's why we have been given the exceeding and precious promises of this book, the mind of Christ. We study God's Word so we can set our affection on things above, not on the things of this world. So if we're successful, we overcome the spirit of this age, as listed in Revelation chapter 3. And lastly, God provides the perfect law for his promised people. Praise God, we don't have to keep the law. We've been given the law, the law giver and the law keeper is the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, but, but today, some are caught up in the, in the legalism of the letter. God needs you to be freed to walk in the spirit so you don't fulfill the lusts of the flesh. The spirit gives us freedom, right? Uh, the, the letter puts us in bondage. Bondage can also come in many forms. It can be religious bondage. It can be sinful, harsh bondage. It can be political bondage. There's all kinds of bondage. But if the Lord has made you free, then you shall be free indeed. So the Bible tells us to cast all our care on him, for he careth for us. The reason the nation of Israel was groaning, the reason they were sighing, the reason they were crying is because they were in pain. They were in bondage. And God wanted to use that to bring them a deliverer that he had already had provided. Perhaps you're here today, and you're, pre- you're a prepared sinner awaiting the provision of God. In your life, you're groaning, you're sighing. You feel like the pressure's too much. You can't take it anymore. You don't know what tomorrow will bring, and you think tomorrow will be worse than the day before. i got great news for you. God has already provided your need, and that need is a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Today is a great day. We're in the process of time. And the pain and agony of the bondage of this world, God can bring you in direct contact with his provision through the word of God, through the Holy Scripture. Let's stand together. Heavenly Father, as we conclude this time together in your word, I pray that if there's any